You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is a colorful place, and human eyes have evolved to take in all its chromatic splendor, from vermilion red to bright tangerine to cobalt blue. But when we do, are you and I seeing the same thing? What you might be seeing as red might be very different from what I'm seeing as red. My wife likes a color, which I don't like. I like the color she doesn't like. She will say, oh, this is maybe a little bit more brighter, maybe, but I say, no, no, it looks good. Your eyes respond to only three different colors or wavelength bands of light. This trichromatic view is different than that of other animals. We can see both more colors and fewer, depending on the animal. Also, humans can't see into the ultraviolet or infrared like some critters can. So what colorful insights might we be missing? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, why color perception is a trick of the brain, making that question we've all once asked still relevant. How do we know that the color I'm seeing is the same color you're seeing? Plus, platypuses and the growing club of fluorescent mammals and the first new blue pigment in more than two centuries. This episode is In Living Color. When we talk about color perception, what we're really talking about is how we perceive and interpret light. And we can only see a relatively small region of the electromagnetic spectrum, the part that we call visible light. But wavelengths beyond the boundaries of visible light, they can be seen by some other animals. Shorter wavelength ultraviolet light, it's relatively high energy light. Well, some things can absorb ultraviolet and spit it back at longer wavelengths in the visible part of the spectrum which makes them glow. This is called fluorescence. So I've got a little ultraviolet light here. This is a tiny one, but I use it actually for my stamp collection to look at the watermarks. (laughs) Are you gonna turn it on? I guess you have to turn off the lights to turn it on, huh? No, you can turn it on with the lights on, but you won't see too much because it's so weak. But I will turn off the lights here, wait a minute. Hit the button. Ah, okay. Ooh. Now, yes, what do you see? (laughs) Well, it is your your face is blue, but your teeth are glowing white. Why are your teeth glowing? Well, it's a, it has to do with the chemical composition of your teeth. So there the materials in there. And by the way, it's not only your teeth. Some of your shirts will do this too. So uh, yeah, you might experiment around if you happen to have a dark light left over from your hippie youth. <laughs> well, not everything glows under UV light like Seth's teeth. 
But recently, one thing did that took scientists by surprise. They were examining animal specimens housed at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. This was discovered by a researcher who walked into a room in a museum with a bunch of platypus pelts and happened to turn on a, an ultraviolet light and everything was glowing. It was this bright greenish blue. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. Um, and the specimens we were looking at were over a hundred years old and they had this incredibly intense color. Hi, I'm Paula Anich. I'm a professor of biology and natural resources at Northland College and I study mammals. As if the chimera-like platypus with its webbed feet, fur, and duck-like bill couldn't surprise us anymore. We, we were flabbergasted. I think we were speechless. I think there was a lot of laughter, like, oh my gosh, what have we discovered now? And definitely a sense that now the work was going to begin to try to figure out what it all meant. We, we had discovered something that made us even more curious. If this happens in nature, if the platypus actually glows under ultraviolet light, that would be very interesting and would deserve some hypothesis about why <laughs> these things are glowing. There are living things that glow under UV light, scorpions and lichens, for example, but the platypus came as a surprise. So Dr. Anich sought the help of a chemist to solve the case of the luminous critters. I'm Michaela Carlson. I'm an assistant professor of chemistry at Northland College. Paula, was the platypus the first mammal you discovered that uh, glowed under ultraviolet light? No, it wasn't. We had first seen biofluorescence in flying squirrels that are very common in the woods around our college in northern Wisconsin. And we had gone to the field museum to try to see if this biofluorescence in flying squirrels was more widespread. Maybe it wasn't just a local phenomenon. And we looked at a whole lot of flying squirrels and, and almost every single individual was brightly pink biofluorescent. And we thought, this is very exciting. We have discovered a new trait that's very specialized to the flying squirrels. And we thought we kind of had it figured out. And then we wanted to check up on the results of an article that we had read about biofluorescence in American opossums. And so we went to the field museum drawer that had the American opossums. We pulled a couple drawers. Yes, we were able to validate the reports that we had read from the 1980s. The opossums were fluorescent too. And opossums are marsupials. And right around the corner from the marsupials are the monotremes or the egg-laying mammals. And so we couldn't resist peeking in the monotreme drawer. So in regular light, the platypus looks brown. Its fur is brown. The skin is black. And when we turned on the ultraviolet light, the entire coat of fur glowed in this bright green. It was almost complete from um, head to toe. The fluorescence was very intense and a different color than we'd seen before. Why were you shining an ultraviolet light at this platypus anyhow? Excellent question. So um, scientists loose in a natural history museum often give in to their curiosity. We couldn't help but look at the monotreme because it was an egg laying mammal and very different than the other mammals that we'd seen. But Paula, there are other living creatures that also, you know, fluoresce under ultraviolet. Why was the glowing platypus a surprise? There are lots of other animal groups, and I, I perhaps know the vertebrates best. There are lots of other vertebrates that are known to be biofluorescent, but it wasn't thought that mammals were a really large group of fluorescing animals. The animals that we know of that are biofluorescent, many of them have really bright colors under daylight. So many birds and frogs that are already brightly and colorfully patterned 
also have this fluorescent characteristic, which almost accentuates the patterns they already have. In particular, our stereotype of nocturnal mammals is that they're, they're drab, they're not colorful, they're brown, they're gray, they're trying to stay under the radar, and they're not really using colors to communicate. So to find these hidden colors in these drab nighttime mammals has been really surprising. Were they all, all of these animals that you mentioned that have this, I don't know, characteristic, do they all glow green under UV? The platypus is the only one I've seen that has this greenish glow. The other species that we've looked at um, are pink or orange. There are reports in the literature of other colors that we haven't really verified yet. And I believe there was also anecdotal evidence. It hasn't been posted yet, but after the platypus paper came out, um, people were shining UV lights on different marsupials. And I believe the Tasmanian devils were showing a blue fluorescence. So Michaela, you're a chemist. That's what you do. And, you know, you saw these glowing animals, these fluorescing animals. What was your reaction? They sidled up to me and they were like, hey, we have these mammals that glow, that the fluoresce, and we're not sure what it is. We think it might be poor friends. And I went, oh, that's really interesting. And then they showed me a picture and I went, oh, that is so cool. Why are they doing that? Um, and luckily, I've actually worked with poor friends in my graduate school before. So I knew some techniques for potentially extracting them. What is a porphyrin? A porphyrin is a type of biochrome, which is basically a pigment that we can isolate from either an animal, which is what we did, or a plant. You can actually find them all over your body. So in the spring hairs, we're seeing them in the fur, which is where we extracted from. But in all mammals, we all have hemoglobin, and the heme in hemoglobin is a porphyrin. So we have a porphyrin with an iron in the middle. There's actually other porphyrins all throughout our bodies as well. So basically, pick a spot on the body, and there's a good chance there's a porphyrin there in some regards. So the fact that these animals glow, I mean, you know, there are a lot of animals that produce their own light. If you go to the deepest parts of the ocean, for example, bioluminescent animals, animals that produce light, fireflies, you know, in the summer and so forth and so on. And, you know, they, they all serve a purpose. But fluorescing is different. You need that ultraviolet light, otherwise you don't notice it, right? Correct. So what's actually happening is the UV light, you need a certain wavelength. And in this case, we need UV light for this to occur. And when the UV light hits these compounds, basically it causes a chemical reaction that allows light to be produced. So it is not necessarily that the animal itself is forming light at a higher process. This light is formed through chemical processes. Okay, so you hit them with ultraviolet light, they glow. But we were talking about the platypus, and as I understand it, the platypus is basically a nocturnal animal. And so <laughs> why is it glowing I mean, with ultraviolet light? Because it, at night, I mean, you know, they, there's no ultraviolet light. There's definitely less ultraviolet light. There would still be some at night. That is actually a really great question, though. And that's one of the areas that we need to think about in the future. Um, it could be that the mammals themselves are able to see, and it's a type of signaling. The hypothesis that, that I'm intrigued by right now is that ultraviolet fluorescence in these mammals is a form of camouflage. We don't know if they can see the colors that they're fluorescing. So we don't know if they're using it to communicate amongst themselves. But in some circumstances, ultraviolet light is more abundant at night than daylight. And so predators might be using ultraviolet light to locate their prey. 
if these mammals can absorb that ultraviolet light and emit a light that's at a different wavelength, it might effectively be cloaking them from predators that are using ultraviolet light to locate prey at night. Communication is another possibility, although we don't know if these animals can see themselves when they're fluorescing. But Paula, you're saying this is a camouflage, but wait a minute, they're glowing. That doesn't sound like a good good, uh, camouflage strategy to me. You know, here I am. Well, camouflage depends on what predators are looking for. If predators have ultraviolet sensitive vision, uh, then they're able to respond to things that are emitting ultraviolet radiation. If the platypus absorbs ultraviolet radiation and turns it into a longer radiation, it's not reflecting ultraviolet light. And in fact, these animals reflect very little ultraviolet light. So predators that are queuing off that ultraviolet light will, um, will not be able to see the platypus. The platypus is essentially cloaking itself. It is producing green wavelengths. So a predator that's keying off of green would be able to see it more easily. So it definitely depends on what the predator is queuing on. Um, And then another possibility is that this is just an artifact of other metabolic processes, and there isn't really an adaptive value of this fluorescence. Okay, I've got to ask you, you say in some circumstances, there's more ultraviolet light at night, and some predators of these animals might be able to see some of that. Where's that light coming from? It's all from the sun. Even at night, it's from the sun. So the platypus, if you see it in daylight um, on a stream bank in Australia, the platypus is fluorescing even then. But the other wavelengths of light that are being absorbed or reflected in that longer band of daylight, those wavelengths are so much more abundant that you never see what it's doing in response to ultraviolet wavelengths. We've been talking about mammals here uh, showing this property, but uh, as uh, we noted, lots of other critters seem to fluoresce as well. And it kind of makes me wonder, why don't we? We definitely do. So if you take uh, your hair and put that in the right wavelength, you can actually see it fluoresce. Skin also fluoresces. So we definitely fluoresce. We just are not seeing our fluorescence. Paula, so uh, this glowing phenomenon, which also seems to be a growing phenomenon because you also found it in this other critter, a, a spring hare. Did that also surprise you? And you know, is it significant in some way? The spring hare surprised us again. Um, the spring hare is a rodent like the flying squirrels that are fluorescent but the spring hare is a very distant relative. There are over 2000 species of rodents. They've had independent evolutionary histories for tens of millions of years. To see this in the spring hare was very significant evolutionarily. It it could indicate that this trait arose independently in the spring hare. It's also possible what we're seeing is an ancestral trait that's been inherited very widely by all the descendants. So finally, the big picture seems to be that we could be missing out on a lot of information conveyed by color because of the limitation of our retinas in being sensitive to only three relatively narrow wavelength bands. It it does appear that platypuses have photoreceptors that are sensitive to ultraviolet radiation. Although platypuses spend a whole lot of their time with their eyes closed. They swim with their eyes closed. They navigate using mechanoreception. So the fact that they are sensitive to ultraviolet light doesn't necessarily mean that they're using it to communicate. I, I think actually just the phrase visible light is so interesting. Visible light is what we call 400 to 700 nanometers wavelength of light. That's because it's visible to humans because we have a yellow lens filter and we have filtered out before it even hits our photoreceptors, shorter wavelengths of light. Other animals 
Um, and we have, there's so much to learn here. Other animals have clear lenses that allow ultraviolet light to make it to the photoreceptors. And there are many kinds of photoreceptors with different sensitivities. So what we call visible light um, is actually much narrower than the light wavelengths that animals might be using to, to see their world or using to communicate with others. Well, Paula Anich and Michaela Carlson, I want to thank you both for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Paula Anich is an associate professor of natural resources, and Michaela Carlson is an assistant professor of chemistry at Northland College in Wisconsin. It would certainly be great to have ultraviolet vision. You know, the rainbow would be extended and there would be colors you'd have to name that we don't know about. I think it would be really interesting. How would you see new colors with UV well, vision? Well, well, ultraviolet is just another bit of the electromagnetic spectrum. I mean, your eyeballs are sensitive from everything that's in the rainbow, right? From deep purple, you know, down to dark red. But imagine what color is beyond deep purple. Those are the ultraviolet colors, right? And, you know, you can't really imagine them because you can't see them. And we don't have any names for them. We don't have, you know, ultra, ultra, or I don't know, brilliant ultra. I mean, we don't have any names for these things because you don't see them. But if you could see them, you would develop names. I see. So these would be wavelengths that are even shorter than the purple end, which is the short end of the visible spectrum in the electromagnetic spectrum. So you're saying as those wavelengths get shorter and shorter on the purple end, there would be new colors there but we can't see them because we can really only see the visible spectrum. Exactly. We get the short end of the stick, but not really. (laughs) You're quite right. Yeah. I mean, that would be fun, wouldn't it? Well, even the colors we see in visible light can be deceiving. Find out what's really going on in your brain when you admire a periwinkle sweater or gaze at an emerald sea. There's several points where information about the color of objects comes into our brain and is interpreted. So that's one point where the color of something might diverge between you and me. That's next. This episode is In Living Color on Big Picture Science. talking about the science of color perception and why we see things like green trees and magenta sunglasses or or fuchsia sports jackets. When we say that we're perceiving color, what we're actually saying is that we're perceiving different wavelengths of light. Our eyes are collecting information from the environment around us and what they're collecting are wavelengths of light that are being reflected off of different objects that we're, that we're looking at. My name is Rob DeSalle. I'm a curator at the American Museum of Natural History and the Institute for Comparative Genomics. He's overseeing an exhibition at the museum about how our eyes perceive color. The color of an object is determined by the wavelengths it absorbs and reflects. Um, now, I have here a uh, bright a yellow lemon. So we remember Roy G. Biv. It is absorbing red, orange, green, blue, indigo, and violet. So we can't see that, and it's reflecting only the yellow wavelength. Yeah, that's right. The tissue of the lemon of the lemon skin is absorbing all different kinds of wavelengths of light except for yellow. But 
there's also the matter of what wavelengths our trichromatic eyes can detect. They've evolved photoreceptors, you know, in the cones of our retinas, and these receptors are sensitive to three color bands, red, green, and blue. So why and how can we see the yellow lemon? Yeah, that's because the wavelength of the light reflecting off that lemon interacts with both the red and the green light detection molecules in your retina. And they send messages to your brain and put together by your brain says, that's not red, that's not green, that's yellow. <laughs> in other words, a color like yellow is sort of an optical illusion produced in your brain. Okay, so imagine you have a particular tiny little patch of your retina, a single pixel, if you will, and it's got three color receptors there, red, green, and blue, and for each of those receptors, it's a neuron running up to your brain. So the yellow thing that's illuminating your retina is exciting the red receptors a little bit and the green receptor a little bit. So now your brain says, oh, a little bit of red and a little bit of green. I'm not just going to call it, you know, futznik. I'm just going to call it yellow. Now, that's just the beginning of the story of how our brains generate color perception. So, of course, we ask, how does our color perception compare to one another's? and to other animals. Rob, what's your favorite color? <laughs> Red, green, blue, no, yellow. Uh, I don't really have a favorite color. I, I think, you know, they're all equally brilliant in their state. So let's get to a big picture question here. Um, so you're a, a geneticist, or you study the genomes and the genes of other animals. What's the connection between your interest and your training as a scientist and your interest in how animals perceive color. Why is that an important question to you? It's important because it's an evolutionary question. And, you know, the, the mechanics of color vision are necessary for understanding how color vision evolved. And for me, any evolutionary question is really interesting. Um, and color uh, vision and colors themselves are just a fascinating subject in evolutionary biology. Almost every problem that you could think of in evolutionary biology um, can be addressed through color vision. Why? What's, what's an example? Yeah, well, you can, you can look at uh, predation and mimicry as a result of color vision. A lot of organisms will evolve colors to allow them to mimic other organisms. And mimicry is one of the big, big topics in evolutionary biology. Darwin was interested in it. And Color is also involved in camouflage, things like uh, butterflies evolving brown coloration so that they can sit on the forest floor. Lace wings, which are little tiny little insects evolving bright green colors so that they can sit on grass uh, and camouflage themselves from predation. There'd be reasons that color would evolve because it's such an efficient way of getting a message across, whereas talking takes longer, signaling, chirping, making other sounds. But with color, the light is going to your to your retina and you're getting the message almost instantly. Yeah, that, that's that's a good way to put it. The quicker these messages are processed, the higher the probability of survival of organisms. To say more about evolution and this idea that color is central to how we understand evolution, we can look at how an organism such as a plant has developed color depending on what it wants to attract. So what are some of the options for plants? Plants are dependent on external factors for reproduction. Many plants are. 
And if the plant is dependent on a pollinator, then color really becomes a big factor. So for instance, columbines are all very similar morphologically. And columbines that open up and allow pollinators to come in at night need to be fairly bright because they need to guide the pollinator to the plant. And so most columbines that open up at night are white. Uh, other columbines will be red because that's a really easy color for a different kind of pollinator, say a bird, to detect. Yet another columbine might be blue and pollinator will focus on blue. So there's a, a really neat dance of evolution around the color of these plants that's entirely important in how these plants reproduce. And of course, reproduction is, is one of the most important things that an organism can do on this planet. Well, Rob, I have another object here. I'm going to hold it up. What's this object and what color is it to your eye? That's an apple and it's yellow on one side and red on the other, which is really interesting. Plants make molecules that uh, are sequestered into different parts of the plant. Um, so, you know, the leaves of a plant make a molecule called chlorophyll and chlorophyll reflects green light, but absorbs light from other parts of the spectrum. That apple that you just showed me, on one side, it's packed with molecules that reflect red light and absorb all the other light. And when you turn it around, there are different molecules in that, in that apple on near the surface of that apple that uh, absorb everything but yellow, yellow light. One of the premises behind your, your work, your book, and the show at the American Museum of Natural History is that we're all seeing a different world of color. So in some ways, what we think we're seeing is not really the way that the world is. Um, what's an example of that? Um, there's several points where information about the color of objects comes into our brain and is interpreted. So um, there's that first point where light comes in and hits your retina. The proteins uh, in my eye that are det detecting light of different wavelengths are the product of my genome. Your genome, you may have different sequences in your the molecules that detect the light waves. That's one point where the color of something might diverge between you and me. Well, we've talked a bit about the photoreceptors that play a big role in determining what we can see, and it's worth saying a little bit more about them. They're also called opsins? Sure, sure. The opsins are just proteins that reside in your retina, the retinal cells, uh, specifically in your cone cells. And uh, again, there are, are three different kinds of opsins, a red, a green, and a blue opsin. And these opsins are embedded in the membrane of your cone cells in your retina. And when light comes into your eye and is focused on your retina, the different wavelengths of light will excite those proteins. And once those proteins are excited, once those opsin proteins are excited, that triggers an electrochemical reaction that is sent to your brain, where they're processed in the back of your brain and your brain may be wired differently than my brain. And so you may, at that point, you may start to detect colors differently than I am. And then your interpretation of, of what your visual part of your brain is doing is also dependent on memory and emotion and other things. And that's yet another point where what you might be seeing as red might be very different from what I'm seeing as red. <laughs> okay, so we're having that conversation that you have 
what if the red that I'm seeing is not the red that you're seeing? Are we seeing the same thing? That stuff that keeps you up all night, you know, ruminating. Is that what we're, is that the conversation we're having here? Whether That's or not- the conversation we're having. And, and it, it actually turns out that color vision and how we interpret colors is as is interesting to me as an evolutionary biologist, as it is to a philosopher who's interested in uh, consciousness and who's interested in, you know, reality and other kinds of things. So color transcends all kinds of disciplines. How could memory influence what color we see? If you, you know, there's that saying, you see red, you are angry, it makes you tense, whereas green, which is what I'm wearing right now, is supposed to be one of the more soothing colors. I understand how colors affect emotion, but how could memory affect how we perceive color? Um, Well, our brains are continually trying to categorize things, right? And so your memory works probably very differently from from the way my memory works. And so if I've got a different memory, a different way of remembering things, a different way of transmitting memory to how I interpret things than you do, then I'm, by logic, I'm going to be seeing things differently than the way you see things. I'm I'm afraid I still don't understand. So does that mean that you would see blue, but I would see green because of something that happened in our childhood, or you would react to blue in a different way that I would react to blue? In a very extreme case, yes, we're probably talking more like bright, bright red versus a little bit off bright red or pink versus a little bit darker pink, those kinds of things. And, and does that have to do with or is the, the way that our brain stores memories and ideas or does it have to do with something traumatic that happened or something wonderful that we associate with a color or that we just always called that the, you know, we always had the wrong label? It can be, it could be both of those. It could be, you know, that something traumatic happened and I associate green with things that are really blue, or it could just be that what I was taught is blue is actually green. And you were taught that what is green is actually green. So it could be something like that at less traumatic. But Rob, how do we know? I mean, this is the question. How do we know what color you're seeing or that I'm seeing, a dog is seeing? How can we do a comparative analysis of how animals are perceiving color in the world? Yeah, we can only use what we know. And I think of those three points where I described impulses in your in your retina being interpreted in your visual cortex and then being uh, worked around by your memory and, and other things. Of those three things, we know the most about how light interacts with, with your retina. And we know a lot about how light interacts with the retinas and light sensing organs of other, other organisms. Now, how it gets processed once it gets into your brain, we know a little bit more, but then that whole thing of consciousness of how we interpret it is really, really hard to study. Um, that's why there's a lot of work on the proteins that detect the light waves because we can get a handle on those scientifically. It's a bit more difficult to get a handle on how our visual cortex is processing things and even more difficult to get a handle on how uh, we consciously interpret colors. Can we talk mantis shrimp? Mantis shrimp. Mantis shrimp. Okay. Is that a yes? Yes. The reason I want to talk about these animals is because they have many photoreceptors. We have three 
for red, green, and blue. And they have a dozen photoreceptors? A dozen, if not more. Um, and these, these dozen or so photoreceptors have been shown to detect different wavelengths of light or to be optimized on different wavelengths of light. And so a mantis shrimp has the capacity to detect uh, many, many different wavelengths of light. And hence the uh, calculations or the computation of, of what those wavelengths mean to the mantis shrimp are uh, more complex than say what our brains do when we compute the information from our retinas. Is the mantis is the mantis strip um, particularly colorful? I think I saw a photo of it, and it's actually quite colorful, right? Mantis shrimps are incredibly colorful. Um, they're uh, just a, one of the more interesting organisms to look at <laughs> with respect to color. They're just amazing reds, greens, blues, just an amazing range of reds and blues and greens too. And uh, the different kinds of photoreceptor molecules that they have in their eyes are probably tuned to detecting these different colors for recognition of different species, but also perhaps very important in mating. So is the world of the mantis shrimp far more colorful than ours? That's a great question. The, the world of a mantis shrimp could be far more colorful than ours. We don't know yet. The best I think we can say right now is that they have the capacity to detect a vast vast array of different colors, much more precisely than we can detect colors. Do you think other animals take pleasure in color the way that we do, the way that if we walk outside and it's just rained and the world seems more vivid and brightly colored than it did the day before and we just feel exuberant? Do you think other animals enjoy the aesthetics of color? I think, I, I, would, I would think that no, I think they, they have a very on or off, a very black and white <laughs> way of, of uh, processing color. Color to them uh, is probably a signal for uh, sex, a signal for I run away from that or a signal for I'm gonna eat that. So uh, that's what colors are probably mean to, to other animals. I don't know, Rob, you might be getting some angry emails from Manus Shrimp disagreeing with you. Um, it wouldn't be the first time I've gotten angry emails, so... Uh... But probably not from a mantis shrimp. Well, Rob DeSalle, thank you so much for talking to us about the science of color. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. A colorful discussion with Rob DeSalle, who wears a rainbow of hats. He's a genomicist at the Institute for Comparative Genomics at the American Museum of Natural History, a curator of its current exhibition about color, and co-author of a Natural History of Color, the Science Behind What We See and How We See It. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Next, a new pigment that will chase your blues away. The moment I set my eyes on those stunning, beautiful blue samples, I was in awe. I had never seen something like that. It's in living color on Big Picture Science.
they say that nothing can cause a couple to squabble like trying to choose which color to paint a room. The imperceptible difference between gray and blue-gray and gray-blue and gray-gray, I mean, combined with the dilemma that they're probably not perceiving the same shade anyway. Some of us go to great lengths to get that perfect hue. Here's Myrna Loy choosing her colors in the 1948 film, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House. Now, Mr. Fidelford, we'll talk about the painting. Okay. Now, first, the living room. I want it to be a soft green. Uh-huh. Not as blue-green as a robin's egg. No. But not as yellow-green as daffodil buds. Uh-huh. But don't let whoever does it go to the other extreme and get it too blue. No. It should just be a sort of grayish-yellow-green. Uh-huh. Now, the dining room. Well, this I'd next like discovery know. adds one more color choice to the palette, made possible by the first new blue pigment in more than two centuries. This is a new pigment which has never seen before, which reflects a particular wavelength of blue, mixes a little bit of a red with it. Meet Yimnin Blue, created with the elements yttrium, indium, and manganese. It's also known as Oregon Blue or Moss Blue because it was found by accident in the lab at Oregon State University by students working for the chemist Moss Subramanian. It's a bright, bold blue. It's really gorgeous. First, I want to tell you that we did not discover a new color because you can't discover a new color because it already exists in the spectrum. And here's why this discovery matters. Sure, you, you can reproduce this shade of blue on a computer display or, or your cell phone, but if you want to paint this color, you'll have to carefully mix several colors, which is tedious. It's much easier to have a tube of paint labeled Yinmen Blue. Pigment industry would like to have a single material which will reflect a single wavelength which gives rise to that hue. It makes it easier for them to manufacture it. They don't mix them together. And another practical point is that Yunmin Blue doesn't fade like the other blue pigments on the shelf. This beautiful blue first tickled the retinas of scientists in 2009, and the color has recently been approved by the EPA for use. The discovery goes to show how a bit of serendipity can bring a little more color into our lives. So, Moss, how, how did you find this thing? You weren't looking for a new pigment of blue. Well, <laughs> uh, the story behind the discovery of Enmin Blue is an amazing one. I call this as a serendipitous discovery. Uh, in 2009, I received a grant from National Science Foundation to discover a exotic material, inorganic materials, which I thought would revolutionize the computer industry or it can be used in electronics. The proposal was, has nothing to do with discovering a new pigment. <laughs> So then I asked my then graduate student to make a series of compounds containing yttrium, indium, and manganese, thinking that I'm going to create a material which will be simultaneously a capacitor and a magnetic. Uh, we, heated, we heated this mixture to a very high temperatures, about 1,300 degrees Celsius, or about 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Then the next day morning, I was in the lab. He pulled the sample out of the furnace. I was really shocked and the samples came out brilliantly blue, which I did not expect. That moment I know I'm looking at something one has seen, not seen before. This is the true definition of a scientific discovery. Yeah, you know, I don't know what yttrium, or yttrium, I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's named after a small town in Sweden or something where they, <laughs> where they first found this. But I, I assume that it looks silvery or white or something like that, certainly the oxides. 
And that would be true of indium and manganese as well. I mean, none of the three have oxides that are blue, do they? Yes. Uh, yttrium oxide, which is white, indium oxide, which is yellow, and manganese oxide, which is black. We mix them together. We form a gray mixture, actually. And then finally, we heat them at 1,300 degrees. They all magically converted into a blue color, which we, I never expected. I expected something like a, maybe a brown or a, maybe a gray. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that nobody has seen this before is because nobody had heated up these oxides before, right? I mean, exactly, together, all the three together. Okay, so the interaction of this new blue with my retina, this is not a monochromatic blue. It isn't just at one wavelength. It, it, it's a bunch of wavelengths. So which, which of the cones in my, on my retina would be lighting up, would be sending signals to my brain, you know, if they were looking at this, this new blue? I think you are, the blue cone and the red cone will be more active when you see the Enmin blue. The problem is this, you know, you probably, you know, this red, green, and blue cones, sometimes people don't have all the cones working. So that's why they're colorblind, actually. So sometimes the person who sees my Enmin blue, if the red cone is not working or the blue cone is not working, they don't see the same Enmin blue what I see. What's the difference between a dye and a pigment? I mean, it, it seems that dyes are usually associated with clothing, and pigments are what I find in paints and stuff like that. Dyes, most of the dyes, it can be soluble in solvent so that you can dye the shirt or your jeans. But in a blue pigment, you, you don't want to dissolve them because you want them to be stable. You don't want to paint a house with, a, with something blue which will fade by, by having a rain, like in Oregon, for example, it rains all the time. So, so you, you end up in having a pigment which is not very stable. Let us like an example of the genes. Genes uses indigo, which fades. But they don't you want to use a blue color, which will not fade, because when the, when the genes fade, it's got a more value <laughs> than the, just the blue genes. So the, the garment industry would like to have uh, something which can stick to the, to the cotton, you know, the material. At the same time, it can fade because there's no choice for them. It will fade. All right. So my Yinmin blue genes are not going to fade which means that I can, you know, I'll, I'll be forced to throw them out. <laughs> One of the very good examples I want to give you this. Do you know the road markings, yellow, yellow markings between the two lanes? That yellow used to be lead chromate. Lead chromate is a yellow pigment, inorganic pigment, which will not fade. But lead is toxic. Now what they do is they use an organic pigment and it fades every two years. They have to repaint the, the lines because it fades. So there is always a trade-off between a pigment and dyes. Okay, Moss, but I could go down to the paint store and, and, you know, find a whole array of blue paints. I could go down to the freeway and see blue cars zipping by. So what's the significance of this discovery? I mean, what's new here? There are very few blue pigments known in the world. Uh, The last blue pigment discovered was cobalt blue, which was discovered in 1802, which was about 200 years back. So it is very difficult to discover a new blue color. In addition, the, every blue color has got a slightly different wavelength of absorption, so it reflects in a slightly different blue, bluish hue. So this bluish hue is special because it mixes slightly with the red, just like a lapis lazuli, but which is not a very stable pigment, which has been used for paintings in Middle Ages, but it's not a very stable pigment. This is a very stable pigment, and also it reflects heat. So it can be used for cooling the buildings or cooling the cars and make energy savings coatings. Now, you mentioned lapis lazuli, 
at, that was used by, you know, the ancients. I mean, that's thousands of years old as a pigment for blue, right? Yes. The lapis lazuli was discovered in Afghanistan more than about 6,000 years back, um, which has been used by many painters middle, in Middle Ages. Just like, for example, one of the examples is the, the Last Judgment painting in um, the Sistine Chapel where Michelangelo used lapis lazuli to paint the Last Judgment because it was a very true blue, which has got a beautiful, intense blue color with a slightly reddish hue. That is the last blue pigment known with slightly reddish hue. Edmund blue is the second one, which has a very similar to the lapis lazuli, but it's more stable than lapis lazuli. So when, if you have, a, if you paint the, your house with a lapis lazuli or ultramarine, if, the, if, the, if there is a slight acid rain, or some other elements in the atmosphere can actually make the pigment to fade. Okay, so these are flawed colors in the sense that if they're out in the sun, they will change their color. Exactly. Uh, when uh, Shepherd Color Company, which licensed our pigment, uh, exposed this our pigment to to the in the deserts of California or in uh, in industrial areas, they did not see any any sign of fading in our pigment. So it sounds like Yinbin Blue has uh, some things going for it in addition to its appealing tint. You know, blue is a difficult color indeed. You've already alluded to that. It's a difficult color to make a pigment for. I kind of wonder whether this has piqued your interest in new pigments because presumably there are other pigments out there to be discovered. I had an oil painting set when I was younger and I don't remember any tube of purple paint, for example. I mean, are you, are you going to try combining other oxides and look for new pigments? In fact, we have created nearly all the colors except red. I'll tell you, we can actually add some zinc and titanium for indium because zinc and titanium is much cheaper than indium. So we added some zinc and titanium for the indium in the mixture, and then we heated it. It came out purple because now we changed the crystal chemistry or the or the crystal structure of the enmine blue slightly. Now it absorbs in the green region, only reflect purple color. Same thing we did. We substituted some iron instead of manganese. We produced orange colored pigments. We have taken the copper and titanium for the manganese. We made the green pigment. So now we know where to look for. See, it was a serendipitous discovery, but we now we know where to look for. So now we can modify the chemistry and actually create materials which can reflect in various parts of the visible wavelength. So we have done this except the red. Red is very diff another difficult color to make because most of the red pigments we use from, you know, from the Middle Ages to even recent times containing cadmium, lead, or, or, or mercury. So all the three are toxic elements. So we are now trying to create a enmine blue version of red. You know, it is very difficult to predict the color of the material before you make it in the lab. <laughs> well, I, I guess from a physics point of view, the color you're going to get out depends on how, you know, the electrons are all arranged in that new compound you make. And that's a very difficult computation. I suppose nobody can do it. So you can still do it by, you know, it's like what you see in the movies when the chemists are pouring one colored liquid into another colored liquid and they get a third colored liquid. I mean, this is really an experimental science. Exactly. Like you, you, you said, the electrons are actually, when you shine a light on an object, the electrons in that object get excited, we say. It go to the higher energy. So that energy 
is very much dependent on the crystal structure. Any small changes like defects or bond length can completely change the absorption characteristics and then finally end up in getting a different color. So you can't predict what you're going to get. Well, well, I'm glad to hear, actually, that there's still room for, you know, <laughs> combining things in the chem lab and coming up with something new, something useful, and something that has artistic merit as well. Ma Subramanian, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Ma Subramanian is a chemist and professor of chemistry at Oregon State University. So, Seth, let's look at the big picture here in the show. We asked the question at the top of the episode, are the colors that I'm seeing the same colors that you're seeing? And we're hearing that they may not be because of the ways that our eyes work and our photoreceptors and our brains and our memories. <laughs> uh, but also the way that we're seeing the world and the mantis shrimp are seeing the world and the platypus, we are taking in different worlds. Yeah, well, a shrimp has a lot more color receptors than we do, so you can be sure that it doesn't see the world of color the same way we do. And in fact, you know, they probably pity us because we only have three color receptors, which really isn't a whole lot, although it has some very good practical consequences. For example, technicolor. Only three different colors, and you can, you know, see the Wizard of Oz in supposedly living color. So you're saying that even though our color vision is somewhat limited compared to other creatures, opens up great possibilities for experiencing the world in color. Well, it has these practical consequences, which are really good. The facts are that humans are really pretty good at, at telling the differences between two colors. They can see very slight changes, right? You put a color swatch of, you know, burnt umber right next to one of, of yellow, and you can see very slight differences. But that's all because of your brain. Your brain can distinguish millions of colors, and your retina is only sending it very limited information about three wavelength bands. It's amazing. Your brain's amazing. Well, we couldn't do this show without the talent spectrum of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the composition of planets, moods, and asteroids, among other things. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard or more about the show, you'll find more about the show and links to the guests on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. This episode is called In Living Color. I'd like yellow, something bright and sunshiny. Uh-huh. I tell you, Mr. Bedelford, if you'll send one of your workmen to the grocer for a pound of their best butter and match that exactly, you can't go wrong.